Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In 2020 so far, events have yet again shone a spotlight on racial inequalities across the globe. And in Australia, 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this country's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled nation still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific. As you might be able to tell, I'm not Martin Pearce. Your erstwhile regular podcast host is safe and well, and I promise he'll be returned in working order in a few weeks, but for now, there's a new sheriff in town. My name is Anna Greta Hunter, and I've launched a perhaps not so hostile takeover of Policy Forum Pod. When I'm not moonlighting as your podcast presenter, I'm a cardiologist, I work as a specialist physician, and I'm a clinical senior lecturer at the ANU Medical School. Some of you might know me as a former panellist on this podcast, or on Democracy Sausage, or on Ask Policy Forum. Now, as the new queen of the castle, or at least this little turret at Crawford School for the next few weeks, I'll be bringing you something a little bit special. As the inaugural Human Futures Fellow at ANU, I'm passionate about climate change and health, about interdependent risks and benefits, and how we can make the best future. That's why, following my policy forum coup d'etat, we'll be looking at the human future. Now, last week, we chatted with two outstanding experts, Honorary Professor Robin Alders and Dr Tiana O'Donnell. We looked at why food is at the heart of our future, why policymakers must provide the frameworks to simultaneously mitigate and adapt to climate change, and asked whether constant growth is really the only way forward for humans to prosper. This week, again, we delve into the future by looking at the challenge directly in front of us today, coronavirus 19. In January this year, I was deeply focused on climate change and health, on bushfires, on smoke and how we might survive and recover. I did not realise the magnitude of the challenges ahead through the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. Fast forward several months and so much of our lives have changed and been altered by this extraordinary global pandemic. So today we're going to ask some key questions around the global pandemic. What are our options for controlling this infection? What are the governance challenges and what and do these governance challenges open other important windows for us for change, particularly perhaps thinking about climate change? So to introduce our panellists for today's podcast, I'd like to introduce start by introducing Dr. Ashwin Swaminathan. Ashwin's a physician and infectious diseases specialist. 
In addition to his clinical work, he completed a PhD with Tony McMichael here at ANU looking at climate change and infectious diseases, and he has ongoing research interest into environmental epidemiology. He's also perhaps the least prominent infectious diseases physician around in Canberra at the moment. Joining Ashwin and I is Professor Sharon Friel. Sharon's, of course, currently on sabbatical, having finished her term as Director of RegNet, the School of Regulation and Global Governance here at ANU. She's still the Professor of Health Equity and Director of the Menzies School of Health Governance. I'm delighted to have the two of you with me today. Thanks so much for coming. So I thought the starting question today might be for Ashwin. Ashwin, could you tell us a little about this coronavirus pandemic? Give us perhaps an overview of the disease. And what we're particularly interested in is what our potential governance approaches might be for controlling this terrible pandemic. Thanks, thanks, Anna Greta. Uh, pleasure to be here and thanks for the invitation. Um, so I think your listeners uh, will be very well versed with coronavirus now. I think we've all become armchair infectious diseases physicians uh, public health physicians, epidemiologists, and and perhaps now immunologists as well. Um, so I'll, I'll keep it brief. The, this coronavirus is um, similar to previous um, coronaviruses that we know about. So the most common one is the one that causes the co- common cold. Um, but we had the first epidemic of or pandemic of of coronavirus back in two thousand and three with the with the SARS outbreak in East Asia. Um, and that was a that is was quite similar to to this uh, particular coronavirus, uh, but it, but different in in certain ways as well. We've had this is there are seven types of coronavirus, so this is the seventh known type, um, and it took off in uh, Wuhan province in in China at the end of last year. We think related to uh, or or a transition from animal um, uh, animal communities into the human. Uh, into the into humans um, via close close contact between animals and humans within a live live markets live animal markets, um, and the coronavirus, as we all know, causes an upper respiratory tract infection in in uh, many people. About seventy percent of people are symptomatic, and thirty percent are asymptomatic. Eighty um, percent of those have uh, minimal symptoms, but about fifteen to twenty percent have a severe. Uh, illness, which is mainly manifest as a respiratory illness, um, and about five percent or under five percent re- require high-level uh, hospital support. So that may, that may mean being um, on high-flow oxygen, needing to be ventilated in intensive care, or require other um, what we call organ support within hospitals. So that's a it's a minority of patients, but. Um, when we're talking at pandemic levels in terms of the number of people involved, it's you know it's a high high number of people uh, across the world. Mm. Uh, Ashwin, um, just no, just so speaking broadly, I I, I believe you've probably had some clinical contact uh, contact with patients who um, are suffering from the coronavirus uh, pandemic or from the infection. The clinical experience, have you noticed a particularly nasty infection? Have you been impressed by the severity of the disease? Yeah, look, it, it's it's a um, it's a very interesting virus. So, as, as I said, the majority of, of people who get this virus have very minimal symptoms, and some are, you know, many are asymptomatic or don't even know they've had the infection. In in some people, and particularly those with risk factors that we've all heard of, you know, diabetes, chronic disease, uh, older age, um, they they are at risk for a more severe form, which is manifest as a severe pneumonia, so inflammation of the lungs. Um, it can be 
Um, at first, the illness in these people who become quite well, they, you know, the first week or so can be relatively um, uh, mild. But it's really when you enter the second week of illness, uh, people really crash, and it, they can crash in within um, half a day. And so be relatively okay at the beginning of the day and by the end of the day requiring um, a, a oxygen and um, needing to come into hospital for support. And the cases that we've seen in Canberra, we haven't seen that many requiring hospitalisation, but the ones that we've seen have had impressive uh, chest X-rays and uh, impressive amounts of support needed to, to keep them alive. Um, unfortunately, mm. we've had a few deaths in, in Canberra, um, particularly those in, in the older age group and with risk factors. Um, and uh, despite everything you can do to throw, throw in terms of support to throw at them, um, it is very hard to support people when they've got severe coronavirus infection of the lungs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, this is what we're seeing worldwide. Um, it's not just elderly people. We are seeing a cohort of younger people as well with uh, severe coronavirus infections and some really odd uh, manifestations too, particularly in young people, um, neurological complications, cardiac complications, yeah, not just the lungs. So I think the more that we learn about this virus, and and certainly as a clinician, one of the things I'm very much aware of is that this virus has only been around for less than a year, and we haven't seen the 12-month follow-up from people who were infected. Um, and I think we're, we're still learning about it as it goes, but the more we learn, the more we realise that we probably don't want to get this infection. Um, Ashwin, what are our mechanisms for controlling it? How, how uh, in Australia, can we approach this infection? Uh, what sort of public health options do we have uh, for trying to reduce the number of people who get infected with coronavirus? Yeah, look, it, it is, um, even though it's a very severe infection and it's, and it's pandemic and it's causing a lot of anxiety, there's nothing particularly special about how it's transmitted. It's a respiratory virus that spreads by what we call droplets, so large uh, viral particles spread from person to person by coughing or or sneezing. Um, it can be transmitted by smaller particles, what we call aerosol transmission in certain circumstances, or by contact of a surface which has virus on it. So that's that's how most respiratory viruses are transmitted from person to person. And so, so this is like the flu or like the colds that we've had in the far past. These yeah, are the same right, sorts right. of modes of transmission. Yep. Exactly. So there's nothing special about it. It's just like your common cold or, or like the flu. Um, and yep. so the the way to break the transmission chain is to not understand how the how the modes of transmission occur, so droplet, aerosol, or contact, and then do things to try and prevent that transmission from occurring. So in terms of droplet uh, droplet transmission, it's things like coughing into your elbow, um, coughing uh, not coughing into the air, or coughing into a tissue and just you know disposing that um, disposing of that um, erratically. It's, it's things like having being a meter and a half away from another person. So we know the droplets don't spread that far. Uh, it's clear. It's you, washing your hands fastidiously with um, alcohol hand rub or with soap and water. Um, it's those sort of things are the mainstay of control. Um, and then it's uh, an additional public health measures are things like not going to work uh, if you're sick or really not going to work at all if you, if you can manage to stay at home, avoiding public mm-hmm. transport, avoiding crowds. Um, and then the the other thing now we have, which we which was relatively late on in the piece, but has dramatically improved our ability to control the virus, is being able to test uh, and isolate people who have got confirmed infection. Um, we understanding the incubation period of the virus, so that's the where the the period of time where you might be asymptomatic after being 
um, in contact with someone with, with the virus um, has really helped that process too. So we know that um, you, most people incubate the virus for about five days, but it's up to 14 days that you can be incubating the virus and you can be spreading the virus even if you don't have symptoms. So mm-hmm. understanding those transmission dynamics, the mode of transmission, the incubation period is very helpful in designing those uh, methods and strategies for breaking transmission. And it's that asymptomatic period where we can potentially transmit virus, which is particularly tricky, isn't it? Um, I, I just wonder if you could explain why local transmission might might be different to our uh, the earlier phase of our uh, coronavirus pandemic in Australia. Is local transmission a problem? Yeah, so what's happened in Australia has been very interesting. So we're lucky because we're an island. Uh, we've been able to um, uh, isolate ourselves from the rest of the world by essentially cutting off um, uh, international travel in the main, at least at least to- tourism, um, and being able to regulate who else is coming into the country, uh, particularly after the virus took off in East Asia and then in Europe and then subsequently in the US. And so we've 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 had a natural advantage because we don't have those land land borders uh and so the first phase of the or the first wave of the infection back in march and april um the vast majority of infection was uh imported infection from overseas so these are returned australians returning home or tourists who are coming to australia uh and they're bringing infection from elsewhere uh, and because it, it was relatively delayed coming to australia by the time we had the testing regimes in place, we were able to pick those people who were coming in uh, with infection and then uh, uh, co- contact trace. So know who those people were in contact with and basically shut it down uh, before it got into the community. So there wasn't community transmission. Um, and it was highly successful, I think, um, beyond the wildest dreams really of our public health physicians and our politicians that it was able to be shut down in most jurisdictions uh, really, by the end of April, uh, we were seeing very low transmission levels uh, in most states. And in some states, by the beginning of May, you weren't seeing any new cases uh, on a daily basis. Um, what's happened in uh, June, end of June, and, and now in July, is that in Victoria, uh, we've got, uh, because of a breakdown in qu- the quarantine of international travellers, uh, the virus has actually come out of uh, from international travellers and into the community, and now you've got chains of transmission happening in the community, which never happened in the first in the first wave, and that is a much more difficult um, uh, st- scenario to deal with because you don't. Miss so did yeah. It does. It strikes me that we've really we've stepped up a, a gear, haven't we, um, with the local transmission outbreaks and and not knowing where it might be in our community. Uh, I gather that there are broadly speaking three ideas in this that you can eradicate the virus, but that's not going to be an option because it's a global approach to eradication, and so we can eradicate infections like smallpox. But for coronavirus, that, that would seem not realistic. But within Australia, there are options for either taking a suppression route or an elimination route or, or the other routes of, of letting the infection run. I don't think anyone's interested in that last one. But what's the difference between suppression and elimination from a, from a public health intervention perspective? Yeah, so look, I think uh, the WHO has got a nice definition uh, in, uh, of what, what we call suppression or control of infection versus um, elimination. Um, so when we say control or suppression, it's essentially when we try and reduce the incidence of prevalence 
of an infectious disease to a locally acceptable level. Okay, so within our capacity to be able to control that infection. So if we see the virus bubble up in a particular area, then we jump on it um, as much as we can. Elimination is 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 sort of uh, uh, suppression on steroids. So it's essentially to try and eliminate or reduce to zero the incidence of a, of the disease uh, in a defined geographical area. So it's you know by a state or in a country. So we don't have any local cases. Um, and as you say, eradication is 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 where you can eradicate a disease from uh, the world, and that's really and you've used the example of smallpox. Um, and that's really only in the in the in the um, setting of you've got an effective vaccine. Mm. So, if it, for our government and they're trying to make decisions, um, and I want to bring Sharon in soon to discuss the the policy implications of this, how how do we make decisions about uh, the choice between suppression and elimination? So, what sort of factors do you think are going into our decision makers' minds when they're trying to work out? Well, you know, should Australia aim for elimination? And some people are saying it's not an achievable goal, or is suppression the only option? Should we be pushing harder towards an elimination? What would be the consequences if we're trying to aim for an elimination pathway? Look, so suppression was a strategy that was decided upon uh, at a pretty early early uh, stage of the pandemic in Australia, so really well well into the first first uh, wave, that it was thought that it was the most likely um, best case scenario is that we're able to suppress uh, the infection uh, in various jurisdictions and at a national level, that we wouldn't be able to eliminate the virus. And therefore, we would... Uh, build up the capacity in hospitals and in the healthcare system to be able to test, to be able to isolate, to be able to manage patients who come into ha- hospitals um, in terms of you know intensive care beds and ventilators and all the rest of it. And it was thought to be that that is the most you know that's the best that we can we can do, um, and that you might be able to slip to sort of zero cases in a in a jurisdiction uh, for a period of time, but you know that wouldn't be the expectation, but that would be a good outcome. Um, and that you would just work on shutting down transmission chains and you would rely on ongoing changes to community behaviour. So basically learning to live with the virus um, mm. so that you you maintain your social distancing, you try and keep your vulnerable population safe as can be, you you detect outbreaks as they occur and, and um, you lock down those areas uh, and you manage those areas that are, have local outbreaks as quickly as you can. Um, and uh, whereas elimination, I think, was thought to be very unlikely or unfeasible in the first instance, where you basically um, are able, you know, you, you come down to zero local cases, no community transmission, and any new cases that come into the community, you know where they're coming from. So there would be, you know, international um, international visitors who are quarantined, and if they have the virus, then you, you know, you're very strictly enforcing that. Um, at the most extreme version of that, you would close the borders, so you would basically not have any infection coming into the into uh, into Australia. Now, there's you, you can just sort of say if you were to be very strict with your your borders in terms of cutting out um, visitors or or tourism or you know expatriates or Australians coming back to to Australia, then that's a huge uh, a, a hugely um, expensive and costly. And politically costly measure to do, um, where you can't open the borders, um, and you have no tourism, you have no university uh, students coming in from overseas. Um, that that would be if you take elimination to its um, to the uh, to the most severe extent. That's what you would do. 
Um, but the benefits of elimination locally would be that you could open up your economy locally. You don't necessarily have to have uh, all of the social isolation and uh, social distancing policies that, that, are, that are currently in place, uh, that you could relax the restrictions on vulnerable people, on nursing homes, etc. cetera. Uh, and, uh, and therefore, at least you could live within your bubble and have a very open economy. But you would then be very vulnerable if the if again if the if there were new cases introduced, so sort of a it's a the, the, the sort of a dichotomy between suppression is that you could um, basically learn to live with the virus, you keep the numbers within your capacities, uh, but you're always going to have some numbers bubbling along. Versus elimination is that you can open the up the economy locally, that you don't you don't have to have all of these restrictions, but you would except for the borders, which would have to be heavily restricted or or scrutinised, mm. um, and that's sort of where we're at the moment in terms of um, uh, of that suppression versus elimination uh, argument. So elimination is really suppression plus plus plus. Uh, yep. What did you say? Suppression on steroids. I think that's a really great way to, to phrase it. Yep. Um, and so, so they're really d- difficult and interesting decisions for our policymakers. And, and I don't think anyone um, begrudges the decision making processes that have had to take place when we're confronting this pandemic. Sharon Friel, as as a policy expert, tell tell us what sort of policy pathways you see developing along this COVID journey. Yeah, well, and I think just picking up on Ashwin's comments of, you know, just how you get that balance from the suppression and the elimination perspective. And I think what we're seeing is this having to work out what are the the trade-offs, the political and the policy trade-offs from, from a public health perspective, from an economic perspective, from a, a social well-being perspective. And your incredibly challenging uh, management of all of that complexity. Um, And I I think, I mean, really just to remind people that are are listening to us that so very quickly we saw this incredible policy response at both the the federal and the state and territory level across, so not, not the the health-specific interventions, but some of the interventions that were really around economic stability, uh, which were focusing on issues of employment, of income, of cost of living, uh, but also, you know, issues of education, particularly if you think of the the childcare, issues of housing, infrastructure, uh, and then sort of wider community services. Because, of course, all aspects of our life have been affected by uh, COVID, partly as a a consequence of some of those interventions that Ashwin has been speaking about um, and and very important uh, interventions. But also really what that has done has shone this light on really the sort of the social fault lines or the underlying issues that we have within society across a much broader spectrum of we speak about it as the daily living conditions, the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age. And that's what we're seeing right now. So when there are the pressures on the economy, when there are pressures on uh, the jobs that have had to be lost or been furloughed, uh, the pressures on uh, being able to manage sort of homeschooling, 
that really is a light, shining a light on these everyday living conditions. And these are all issues of economic and social and uh, planning policy. And we've seen, so there have been 20 policy interventions just at the federal level across eight different categories, income, employment, cost of living, education, housing, infrastructure, community, and then of course in healthcare and across the state and territory level, similar numbers of of policy interventions. So real trade-offs, real balancing of different policy responses. One of the things that I think is really positive in you know, in what is an incredibly awful situation is that health is now sitting right up there in terms of as a goal, as a policy goal. Health is elevated right up there with economic goals. You know, within the, the health world and particularly in the health equity world, you know, it's always been the poor cousin, you know, why you know, health for what purpose or the economy for what purpose. So I think that's uh, something that we really can't go back from recognising that health is an incredible marker of societal uh, progress, equally important uh, as the economy. And so I think... That, that's a... Yeah, go on, uh, Annie Greta. No, no, you were about to say, I think. Well, I suppose I just think what we have in front of us now is a real opportunity in that policy landscape that I've just sort of spoken about, you know, in the thinking of the the, the job keeper, the job seeker, and I think some disappointing uh, discussions and announcements today around sort of the pullback uh, of the, the amount of money that's been allocated into the um, uh, those those areas into the the job seeker payment because like if so from a health from a wider uh, population health perspective and particularly from a health equity perspective there's two things that are really important to keep people well it's having enough material resource to live a dignified life and secondly it's having a sense of control over our lives. And we know that those two things matter for both our physical health and our mental health. And so mm. things like JobKeeper that was introduced as a response to COVID-19, the, the increase in the payment, that actually is an incredible intervention for keeping people well. And so from a policy perspective going forward, don't pull it back. If we want to keep society well, if we want mm. to keep people out of hospitals, if we want to keep yep. the healthcare budget uh, down, the, the, the cost of all of that, then something yep. like the JobKeeper is an incredible health policy. Of course, it's not in the health sector, but it's an incredible uh, health prevention policy. And we know incredibly important for reducing health inequities. So real opportunities, I think, to 
Yeah, so that's that's a really great spot for us to uh, to take a little break. Um, I, I think to reinforce that message that health is a fantastic uh, goal for a government. It's a goal for a society, um, and those two things that we need in order to have our have good health: the enough material resources to have a dignified life and to have a sense of control. And I think we've seen this really play out through the bushfires first over summer and then coronavirus pandemic. So we're going to take a quick break here um, and we'll have some words from our sponsors. We'll be back in just a moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So, welcome back. Coronavirus uh, is offering us some hard choices in our personal lives. It's affected where we work and how we live, it, how, how we educate our children, whether we can travel, where we can travel, how we entertain ourselves, how we might relax. It's been a time of extraordinary challenge for so many in Australia and around the world. And for governments, the prospect of mounting debt and deficit, of altered income and increasingly fractious global interactions without the human interaction that often smooths those pathways, see some pretty serious challenges on the horizon for our human future. So I want to pick up again on some of the, the conversation that we had before the break. Are there health advantages in our coronavirus response? Could this be a, define, a time to define our human future? Should we be shifting towards a different balance in terms of our government behaviour? Is this an opportunity for a well-being-based uh, economy? And are there health advantages in that? I think we'll start there with Sharon Friel. If you're happy to comment and take that forward... Sure, yeah. I mean, I think there are real opportunities for health and for uh, the environment going forward uh, in this sort of time of, of rupture and disruption through COVID-19. I think very important to remind uh, listeners uh, some of the other health burdens that we have within Australia and globally, in fact, much, much greater uh, than uh, we're currently experiencing in Australia with COVID-19. That's not to, to uh, dismiss the, the terrible effects of COVID-19. Um, but Anna Greta, you mentioned, you know, like earlier in the year, uh, the terrible fires that we've had in Australia. Then we had the, the terrible floods uh, as well. And we know that these are all uh, so intimately connected uh, with global climate change. Uh, and we'll see the recurring effects of that, the cascading effects of climate change affecting health and health inequities here in Australia. 
and you point to some of the changes that we've seen in our individual behaviours uh, as a consequence of, of COVID-19 and all of that is, is very true in terms of lightening our environmental uh, footprint. I might just make the, the comment that I, for us moving forward, I think very important uh, at this point in time to pay attention to what some of us have been speaking about as the consumptogenic system. So this idea of uh, interconnected web of uh, public policies, of private uh, practice uh, of uh, industry policies, practices, products of different ways of governing, of the um, the norms within society that really incentivize and reward unhealthy and environmentally destructive production as well as individual consumption. And so really for us to think about and challenge the systems that are driving uh, some of these environmental uh, destructions as well as the, uh, the poor health outcomes. So from a policy perspective, that really does mean thinking about energy policy. It's about thinking about uh, food and agricultural policy. It's about thinking about infrastructure policy. So it's how we get a balanced um, balance policy response that isn't about saying it's all about you as individuals. We've seen what you can do as individuals as, uh, as through this change that's been required in ways of living from COVID-19. That's fine. But actually, there's still the big systemic drivers of climate change and the associated health consequences from that are in, I would say, some of the big corporations, some of the big fossil fuel industries. Uh, and it's there that we have to really make some significant changes. And that, of course, is a very big challenge politically. But if we're going to do something about climate change and if we're going to do something about climate change related health outcomes, we've got to pay attention there. Um, so just so that we can. Well, you, you certainly get the sense at the moment that that um, that the opportunities for change are, are perhaps unique in terms of the the uh, modern time. That that people are beginning to understand the consequences of human behaviour and human activity. Um, I've been really fascinated looking at the relationship between air pollution and our economic activity and the potential health benefits of decreasing urban air pollution um, and some of the the really unusual health ramifications of lockdown down and shut down. Ashwin, have you seen this in practice? Do you think we're seeing health advantages of our coronavirus response? Yeah, look, um, I think um, there's been multiple things that have changed now for the better because of our response or our experience with the coronavirus. And it'll be interesting to see what is sustainable and what isn't. Um, just off the top of my head, um, we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, we should also observe that we've had a marked reduction in uh, other respiratory virus uh, illnesses, uh, coming hospitalizations related to uh, viruses coming to hospital and, and deaths. So, for example, in 2019, we had in Australia over 900 deaths related to influenza. Uh, and we're not seeing any influenza uh, activity in Australia at the moment. And that's because the measures we're taking to keep COVID away are also working against other types of respiratory infections. So um, there is a you know co-benefit of the things that we're doing in terms of um, infection control. Um, and uh, presumably we're also going to see the, the improvements on other 
um, chronic diseases that are usually exacerbated by having you know your respiratory infection. So cardiovascular respiratory illnesses that are exacerbated by having you know uh, the flu or other respiratory viruses will also be likely less this year. Uh, but that's only because we're in lockdown and we're we're having uh, you know restrictions that we've never had before. Um, so I think but it is really fascinating to see some of these health advantages of of shutdown, lockdown, of of restricted human activity. The the benefits, as you say, of decreasing those respiratory illnesses, and then the flow on effect to a cardiovascular events. The the benefits of a decrease in our air pollution or improved air quality. Um, and many people may have spotted that piece that's been circulating looking at premature babies and the significant reduction in premature deliveries in various locations around the, the world, which appears to be in some way related to the, the shutdown period. Um, the biology of that is, I think, uh, uh, uncertain. Um, but it's it's interesting to see how much of our human behaviour, our standard life that we used to live, might be actually adversely affecting our health. Uh, and if our primary driver is going to be health and well-being, um, and I think it should be, then then some of how we live might be able to change. I'm just going to make the comment that I think our general health literacy of our of our leaders, of our politicians, of our community leaders, and just the community in general has improved. That we're doing the basics better now than we ever used to. So even just basic hand hygiene, cough etiquette, all of those things are going to be very useful uh, in non-pandemic periods as well as during this pandemic. And I hope that those messages stay in our minds and in our and uh, in our um, you know that these are strong public health messages that are that resonate for a long period of time. Certainly, my my kids are going to childcare and they all are now washing their hands much more than I ever used to <laughs> see them before. So the messages are resonating at at, at all levels and in all levels mm. of the community, which I think is a is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but we're not going to fix it just by getting rid of respiratory viruses because the other thing we've done to improve health and well-being, as Sharon said, is to give people adequate financial support through the job keeper, job seeker. Sharon, was, was that something that you were about to comment on or were you, did you have another point to make? Well, I, I suppose sort of relatedly, with, so whilst that, that we have done that and given people uh, additional money, that's been pulled back. And so that in and of itself, so giving and then taking back, that in and of itself is actually going to be quite harmful for for people. Um, you know, the sense of what might have been possible has now been really undermined. And I think that also then goes to uh, some of the negative, other sort of negative health consequences that we're certainly seeing with mental health. So some data that's come out from Victoria showing an increase in uh, high levels of psychological distress, having gone from 17% a couple of years ago to 44% uh, in the the general population uh, across Victoria. Uh, I think that was in uh, March, April time of this year. So the mental health uh, implications of, of COVID isn't great. The other sort of negative, it's good that we're doing sort of the bad cop, um, good cop, bad cop, because <laughs> I'm talking about the negative stuff now. Um, but the, the, the neg- some uh, risks really, I think, for um, you know, some non-communicable diseases. So we've seen some of the commercial uh, actors get on board as becoming, uh, you know, really helpful. I'm, I'm doing this in inverted commas. Uh, in times of of coronavirus um, and really pushing, for example, foods that are high in fat, high in salt, high in sugar, your comfort foods to help you. 
Um, we've seen you know, a real push around alcohol uh, at a time when people, and we've seen an increase in um, home sales, sales related to home uh, consumption uh, at a time when we're all sort of locked, uh, locked down. So the, um, the behaviour, the corporate behaviours uh, are something that I think from a policy perspective we really have to be paying attention to. So Because on one hand, it's no good saying, well, it's great for all of us as, uh, as citizens out there. You know, we're being physically active, we're all cycling, we're all out walking, we're all having incredible community interaction, which is all very true. Um, but on the other hand, we've now got a greater push uh, by some of the... Um, uh, the the food and beverage corporations to help push their products, which are really not very good uh, for health and particularly non-communicable diseases. Oh. So it's yeah. you know we really have to look at the, the sort of the suite of policy responses that are going to help us across a number of of different health conditions. I think. Mm. Um, absolutely. Uh, I, I think we're we're heading towards the end at this point. Um, I wanted to finish going back to this question about how we might resolve a policy decision between uh, elimination and suppression. Um, none of us are in a position of making those decisions, but I, I wonder, Ashwin, whether you'd like to give your thoughts uh, on the pros and cons. If if you were helping to guide the decision making, and um, the, certainly the public discussion is something where we where we can have influence. Uh, how would you approach the decision-making between suppression as a strategy and uh, the elimination strategy at this point in time? Look, I think that um, even though it's, it's the public debate is, is trying to have this dichotomy between elimination and suppression, it should be noted that we were very close to elimination at the beginning of June across the country. We were. Um, and the data now coming out of Victoria is to suggest that there was actually local elimination in Victoria as well and, and throughout the country. And really, it wasn't a failure of suppression. It was a failure of early early uh, elimination that was the problem because of the, the issues in the quarantine hotels. So I think for mine, it's that the suppressive the suppression strategies are highly effective. Um, they need to be kept in place for long enough uh, with uh, hand in hand with a very uh, robust and expansive testing and isolation strategy that you can actually by doing a suppression strategy, you can actually get to elimination. And then it's all about the border control and how do you control the importation of cases and manage that really well. I think that was a failure this time in June in Victoria, uh, and we, we need to heed the lessons of that. So I'm, I'm sort of confident that even though the cases in Victoria are still in the many hundreds per day and there's community uh, chains of transmission, that um, the virus itself hasn't changed. We know how it transmits. We know what will stop it. Uh, and that, you know, over the next few weeks, we will see a reduction uh, in transmission. It may be, it may take some further restrictions in Victoria just to, to get on top of the numbers. But in the next few weeks, we will see a reduction close to what we were seeing in June. Um, and then it will be, then we're essentially, we've got to a practical elimination stage. And then it's really uh, strict, strict, uh, adherence to uh, border controls. Um, so I, I don't sort of necessarily buy this, you either go with suppression or you go with elimination. I think you can you can have both of those without um, wrecking, necessarily wrecking the economy or, or, um, or necessarily closing the borders completely. 
Mm. I do think, though, if we if we get to elimination, that we can't say, well, everything's okay now. We can stop. We can start having mass gatherings. We can stop social distancing. We can stop doing all of these things that we need to do because we need to have those disciplines in place uh, because there are going to be outbreaks that happen here and there because of a quarantine failure or whatever. Uh, and we do not know when a vaccine is going to come online and how effective that's going to be. So I think we need to have in our in our psyches a ongoing discipline of maintaining at least some degree of the social distancing or physical distancing strategies and the testing strategies. Thank you, Ashwin. I think that's a really wise set of advice about how we might be thinking about this. Um, Sharon, what are your thoughts perhaps on, on how you'd like to see this policy landscape evolve over the next coming, coming months? Yeah, um, I, I suppose why I look at that whole sort of policy landscape from that health equity perspective and, and then obviously all of the opportunities from a, an environmental sustainability. Um, and I I would love to see the, the maintenance of some of the progressive uh, policies that have been put in place rather than a return to some very severe uh, uh, policies that really undermine people's ability to live with dignity uh, and in good health and to, to flourish. Um, so I, I think there's a real role for um, sort of coalitions, public interest and social interest coalitions to continue to engage uh, with government to make sure that that policy landscape doesn't become so economically focused that it forgets all of the other possible goals. Uh, so inputting um, voice into the, the National Cabinet would be a fantastic thing to make sure that the National Cabinet continues to hold or holds health, social, equity, environmental goals in there when they're sp- speaking about their primary um, articulated purpose of uh, economic recovery and and jobs, uh, and I, I would just a final thing is um, what did have we asked the public how they are feeling and what they think about all of this? Again, one of the other well, a third strand of what keeps people healthy, well, and flourishing is having a voice in the decisions. Uh, that affect their lives and it would be really interesting to hear how the National Cabinet uh, and others in those positions of uh, decision making are actually listening to the public's voice uh, in, in those policy deliberations. So a starting point that perhaps we have some sort of uh, federal parliament running on a regular basis again, despite the physical limitations. Yep, um, that's a superb point, um, and and I hope that um, that uh, that some of this gets adopted. I think the the health, social equity, and environmental goals as a central central point for this economic recovery um, would be a wonderful mantra to see adopted broadly. That is a Great spot for us to finish today's discussion. I'm so grateful to today's panellists, Professor Sharon Friel and Dr Ashwin Swaminathan, your extraordinary discussion today. Ashwin, it's been wonderful to hear your words of wisdom on this global pandemic. I hope we get to hear more of your infectious diseases perspective moving forward. 
And Sharon, I really hope that some of our federal government colleagues are listening to today's podcast and take some of the messages home with them. Listeners, do you have any thoughts, questions or suggestions on today's episode? Something you'd like us to ask our panellists on next week's episode? Get in touch with us now. We're on Twitter at, a, at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Or better yet, if you haven't done so earlier, uh, you can find us on Facebook. You find the Pod Squad under Policy Forum Pod uh, and join a great group of people who are having fantastic discussions on these interesting issues. And if you don't want to miss out on next week's special or any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod, you should definitely subscribe to us. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your favourite podcast shows from. Once you've subscribed, you might also like to leave us a quick review. It'd really help us to get the word out about this pod series. Next week, Martin Pierce will be back with you. And I'm hoping at some point in the next couple of months that perhaps we can come back with another cameo and further exploration of the human future. I'd like to say thank you to Martin Pierce and to the Policy Forum pod for letting me uh, take over with a not-so-hostile takeover of this podcast series. Thank you so much for, for letting me explore some of these new ideas. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.